Ban pillage for a week or two. Oh, hi there. Welcome to yet another episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. Coming to you here from my little pigsty in New York. There, there. I had barely come over Kim Kardashian going to the White House the other week when Dennis, Ro when Dennis Rodman came on the TV. Crediting Eddie Vedder and some cannabis-based cryptocurrency for making magic happen on the Korean Peninsula. The so-called leader of the free world is a reality TV star whose main strategic opponents are a pygmy martial artist and a communist who literally claims descent from a god. Now, you and I both know that if Oprah Winfrey ran for president right now this instant, she would win with a fucking landslide election. Because, in spite of all our apparent achievements, all the public really wants is a loaf of bread and a circus to keep them entertained. I'm starting to wonder if North Korea losing their nukes is a wasted opportunity to just put us all to just put us all out of our misery. This is, thank God, not a podcast about politics, and never shall it be so. But with the state of the modern world in mind, you can see how some people might feel a desire for something a little different. To zone out for a weekend and immerse themselves in a life very different from their own. One where they can try to approximate how it must have been to live without modern conveniences and without the bitter aftertaste shh, shh, and without the bitter aftertaste of the modern world. If you're a living historian if you're a living historian or reenactor listening to this episode, I'm going to make a few sweeping guesses. I'm assuming that the period you reenact lacked access to plumbing and very often running water. Maybe people shared the toilet with livestock, as I'm doing now, and used the waste products to fertilize the fields in which they grew their staple crops. I'm guessing their diet was nutritious, but monotonous, with occasional seasonal feasts. And still then, starvation was a real threat to the existence of your loved ones and yourself. I'm going to guess that whichever period you're reenacting, your dentist would have been the same guy that shooed your horse. And I'm assuming that your chosen culture had many taboos and a highly developed and strict set of gender roles, which you can kind of just choose to not agree with today. Of course, these things would never have been a choice in the past. Maybe it was an exceedingly violent society too, whether due to a high tolerance for physical force or due to the culture's inherent militarism. At any rate, I'm going to assume that it was a time where human life, in one sense, was cheap. But maybe there are other factors to consider. After all, the above has been the norm throughout most of human history, but then again, these were times where personal bonds were strong, because you had to really depend on your friend and kin. Maybe, in spite of the suffering and fragility, there are things to learn from this, and even admire in the past. I'm going to guess that you, my listener, lived a relatively comfortable life. Maybe it's not where you want to be, but in some ways, you're probably living a lot more securely than many of your ancestors did. If we're going to represent the past at all, shouldn't we do our... Shouldn't we... Shouldn't we do our best to just bring the 
passed to light with the highest regard for quality that we can muster, to pay our respects to their craftsmanship, from the meditated proficiency of the metalworking smith to the fine, slow artisanship of the weaver, what about the singer of tales or the level hand of the scribe? Yes, I say, yes by the gods! Then why aren't all reenactors pulling their weight? Why are there people out there, real people, who claim to present any kind of approximation of the past, yet spend more time watching Vikings on TV or Game of Thrones than they spend reading archaeological reports or doing sound experimental archaeology? Today we're going to lead by example. Today's guest is Dieter Huggins, living historian, archaeologist, cage fighter. Dieter is one of the co-founders of the living history group Wolf Hedonas recreating the Germanic military aristocracy of the early so-called Dark Ages. Wolf Hedonas is one of the most widely celebrated living history organizations to ever raise their tents on worldly soil. And I think it's fair to say that with their elaborate eye for detail and strive towards accuracy, they make up the very gold standard of modern living history. If you're a living historian wondering how you can raise the bar for yourself and your friends, I will seriously advise you to listen to this episode. Keep a keen eye for authenticity and carve your own way through the jungle of your desired period. Dieter and I are going to be talking a lot about living history itself. How do you get into it with a level head? Why is it so expensive to do it well? And spoiler alert, it really doesn't have to be. We're also going to discuss the display and aesthetics of burial in the Iron Age. And if you haven't guessed it already, we're going to talk a lot about violence because we're morbid. So wipe that war paint off your goddamn face and chuck that leather lamb Lara in the fire. This is Living History with Dieter Huggins. Yourself to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose if we're going with why I'm on the podcast, uh, it's probably with my background of living history and uh, being one of the founding members of the living history group, uh, Wolf Ednas. Um, I mean, I've, 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 like I said, I've been there from the start. Uh, I've also got a, a background, um, an undergraduate degree in uh, history and archaeology. So I think. That as well as a great deal of many other interests, so <laughs> I think I think that'd cover it. For those listeners who might not know, I mentioned Wolf Hedenas on the podcast before, but mm. uh, Wolf Hedenas is widely regarded as being one of the most uh, high quality, uh, famous, should I say, living history groups. <laughs> famous, infamous, uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah, infamous, I think that's also a good way to describe <laughs> it, but uh, it's a very influential uh, living history group and I think it's fair to say maybe that it's right now maybe the biggest cheese on the cheese board um, I mean yeah I think if, if we're talking about our reach um, our social media presence we have um, for our period probably the the biggest Facebook following 
which I can recollect out of any other living history group. Uh, it's literally in the tens of thousands now. So. Yeah, that's quite impressive. I know that uh, not just for living history, but also museum education, mm. getting a wide reach is one of the big holy grails yeah. uh, of, the, of the whole scene, so to speak. Uh, and uh, just somehow you've made some sort of formula out of it. Also, in a way, that's extra impressive because you cover what in many regards as a niche area maybe yeah uh, uh, extremely niche to be honest in, in some regards i mean even though we the, the period we cover um you know from essentially the end of the uh the roman empire in in europe up until um just preceding the the english viking period um and we cover that, that, that period of history really for all of Europe, um, off of the majority of Europe, Central Europe, um, Scandinavia, yeah. England, um, and in some degree, uh, the uh, yeah, Southern Europe, uh, Langobardic territory to an extent. Yeah, you mentioned the Langobardic now, and uh, which other cultures are being covered here? You have the, the early Anglo-Saxons. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, the um, the early Anglo-Saxon, uh, Frankish, different Germanic territories, uh, Alemannics in there. Um, and then you've got the, the more obvious kind of Vendel culture, which is what we've kind of become synonymous with, really. And then there's like I said, little dabblings into other areas. I'm probably missing some other things out, but that covers the majority of the bulk of what we do. Yeah, the visual aspect perhaps is mm. very strong with Wolf Hidden Us, and uh, you definitely have managed to create uh, a sort of group look, I think, despite also it being very high-quality, source-critical reproductions. Yeah, um, I think the... It's been marketed in a certain way, if you could use the term marketing, you know, it's, it's a non-profit group, we're not really getting money back out of it. Um, and it's, it's an expensive it's, hobby. Too. It's a very, ex yeah, it's, it, we kind of have a joke in the group about like, at what point does a hobby become, a, an obsession become a lifestyle? It's, I'm, I think it's fairly safe to say that it ends up transcending just a hobby. Um, you know, your hobbies you do in your spare time, you, you gear it up around the rest of your, your life, but this kind of um, takes over it. You kind of end up working the rest of your life around what you're doing. Um, Often people use, I think, living history yeah. as an interchangeable term with reenactment. They're Indicate, too different. Yeah, they're two different things, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, the, the two terms aren't meant to kind of engender some kind of academic snobbery. Um, I'm sure that would be levied against us in some respects, but it's reenactment for me is something you do as a hobby. Um, living history is something you do as a passion, and you've got to have a passion for it. You've got to invest a lot of time going into it. Um, and that, that's the approach which we take, you know. Uh, as you mentioned before, we, we, try and, um, we try and create these really uh, high-end reproductions of, uh, of the items which we choose. Um, and it's always been the case that we've, we've never really scrimped or half-assed on anything we've really done. Um, 
and you do make sacrifices for those things. It's, you know, yeah. uh, people make the choices of what would they rather do. Would they rather go on holiday, uh, buy a car, things like that, and yeah. instead we choose to buy things like helmets um, or belt buckles. And you know, people look at them, they go, "Ah, oh, these things are amazing." Blah blah blah. They look, they look fantastic. Um, yeah, they do, and they've been created by some extremely high quality craftsmen, but. The price tag which comes with them reflects that. It's not, it's not a, a cheap item. It's not something which you could just knock together. If you want the quality, you've got to pay for it. Um, and these things can cost hundreds to thousands of pounds. Yeah. So if if you're not investing, you're not going to have that that look. And we choose to invest because we want it accurate. But we've we've always had. Uh, like you said about having a formula for things, uh, Wolfedness has a formula as such um, in how we take the approaches to recreations. Um, and it's not a formula we can really take credit for as such. Um, while we might have, I, I wouldn't say perfected it, you can never really perfect these things with archaeology, it's, it's just something you can't really do. Um, but you can do it to the best degree you you can possibly source anyway. But the um, I think you've, you've got to give credit where credit's due. The inspiration for the for a formula we have and the way we put it forward, um, actually, it was pioneered by other people. Um, Arian Ziliox of the group Paul Fedna, um, he really deserves some credit because they were a group which um, aesthetically and visually and the way they were going about things uh, did have an inspiration. They were recreating uh, grave grave goods as a whole, so they'd take a grave particularly, and then they'd then analyse it through the archaeological sources, and they'd recreate those things to the highest quality. And doing that gives um, a very solid context of a recreation. Mm. There is, there's arguments to be made about that, and what the what grave findings represent, but it still gives it a close context. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important, and that's what we tried to do. Um, and plus, when you're looking at the archaeological record, you've got um, you've you've got all the measurements there. You've got, especially if it's a good it's a good record. Sometimes you know it depends on where you're looking, who's who's published. Um, it can be a little bit hit and miss, but. Like I said, um, really, Ulf Hedden led the way with that. They were one of the first groups to do it. Um, and then we picked it up, and I suppose the difference is we've just got... Um, we, and we always have had quite a strong social media presence, so we've just been able to really spread that and, and post out there. But the, the blueprint is, is from there. You know, using these grave representations... Um, in our works and our recreations, I think it's vital. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about this. Uh, you know the the limitations of grave finds. Mm. Of course, the the dead don't bury themselves. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's always a curated selection. Yeah, um, and I think one of the one of the most iconic burials. I mean, you you could talk about a lot of burials with regard to this. Um, you know, there's an element of pageantry. In um, in a lot of burial for 
for this entire period, everything represents something. It's a lot of the burial that's there to be seen. Um, and, the, you know, the, there's talk, um, there's a paper where it mentions that the, especially the boat burials, which are uh, famous from the Vendel graves, um, Valsioda and uh, Sutton Hill, that I think if I remember correctly, it was the they'd looked they'd done the pollen analysis and mm. they'd realised that it was it was seasonal in that it it had been open for an amount of time, so people could yeah. have seen it. They thought it was co- eventually covered over, um, but it still leads us to the point that these things are to be seen. And as we we're saying about um, the curation of the burial in itself, yeah, um, the dead. Although the dead have a choice because you know they're not going to um, be overruled by uh, the people putting in there, but there is an element of change. Um, and as I was saying, the, the iconic one really is is Sutton Hill. Yeah. Um, there's there's things which are placed into that burial. There's items which um, seem to really be making a political stand and a social stand. Um, the baptismal spoons, which were placed in there, you know, the Christian spoons in there. Um, the um, the political badge of the uh, the Byzantine bowl, I believe, um, as well as you know, um, and I won't use the term sceptre because Paul Mortimer hates that term. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. the Sutton Hill stone. Yeah. But the Sutton Hill stone seems to have some um, some very strong. Uh, pagan imagery on there so kind of edging your bets between the two you know shows this kind of synergy between these two worlds and these two different social standings and these two different realms of influence but the choice to put them both in is a, a quite a powerful statement really mm. um, so that's what we're talking about when you when you, you say these things it, even though these things have been chosen to put in these things are a reflection of the person as a whole and what their influence is and what the power is and it's a display to other people, but that might not necessarily be a representation of their everyday life. So you, this is what you've got to be careful with, really. Yeah. What's in the grave is extraordinary, you know. It is, and just these, as you as you talked about, you used a very good term here, pageantry, mm. uh, with uh, with burials, because we see that also in Viking age that some of these burials are left open for a while and. Mm. Uh, they are part of a huge societal investment, or at least an investment from the dynasty they belong to, perhaps. Yeah. Because it takes a lot of labor to, to create them. There's a lot of rites and rituals. Animals are being sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it must have been an immense and often very gory display, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine so. It's Like you said, it's an investment to put all these things in. and. Taking them out of circulation too. Exactly, yeah. I think that's that's what I was about to get on to. The fact that every time you put a, a certain good in, or an artifact, whatever it is, um, be it, you know, if it's animal um, sacrifices or if it's material goods, that disappears. I mean, although you have these cases where, um, for example, these things, that the, the graves get robbed, in some cases, artifacts are taken out and brought back in circulation for whatever reason, even if that's um, robbing certain things for material value or if it's robbing things or excavating them possibly in antiquity for an ideological purpose. Um, these things which, you know, that taken aside, you put something in there, 
the intention is that that is gone, those things are lost, but those things are personal to that person, and that is allowed to display, whether it's um, putting in slaves in a later context or in the early context where you're putting in um, these these animals, you know, in, in some of the cases of the um, of the Vendel, Vendel burials um, Valsierda, there's they're putting horse, horses in, and it's not yeah. just one horse in one burial, it's more than one. And then there's these other, you know, there's other sacrifice animals uh, which are going in there, and that's, that's quite an expenditure. Um, I mean, it, it might not be to them necessarily at the time in one go, but the amount of grave goods, you can't really overstate it. No. It's not just one sword going in, no. it's more than one sword, it's more than one spear. It's, you know, all these items, um, the cooking ware, vast amounts of those and when you start looking at it and adding it up you think wow is <laughs> is he essentially emptying his own personal armory and putting that in there with him as well as everything else and it's not just what what he said about the man hours of creating the burial itself it's the man hours which have gone into creating those goods and yeah. for those to be able to disappear with them I mean, that's quite fascinating really I think textiles are also one thing that is often unspoken. Mm, yeah. here. You know the enough yeah. amount of labor that and and the skill that went into making the yeah. garments, weave the cloth, I mean, spin these, the yarn. These are the organics, the things which we which disappear, which we don't end up seeing yeah, in, in a lot of contexts. Sadly, I mean you, you do get the occasional um, the occasional item which in some degrees left in there which gives a hint that these are in there obviously but you know we, we take for granted that these things are put in it's it's easy to talk about you know the the ferrous items which are left in there or any of the others which kind of stand the test of preservation um but like, yeah I, I completely agree you know we, we we know that they were wearing these absolutely fantastic fabulous items um in the in the textile um department but yeah. it's just a shame that we're losing and we're not seeing exactly what it is speaking of that uh, you were talking about Ulfetnar mm. and uh, and how they were a huge influence on you I think they've been a huge influence on the living history world uh, at large really especially the Iron Age ones but mm. uh, at the same time I think that oddly we are living at a time where I think that like the reenactment scene could have had a lot let me rephrase it, I think, yeah. It could have had a much higher standard of quality overall. It seems that some people are moving forward uh, with a higher quality kits yeah. and other ones are kind of regressing into <laughs> pop culture and almost this. Um, yeah. Oh, I can feel a rant coming with this. Um, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, but you can't expect... This is a thing, you know. You can't force people to do these things. And you know you shouldn't force people to do these things. It's what they choose to do with it is up to them. That doesn't mean that I don't want to smack them around the head quite regularly for the things that I do see. Um, mm. And it <laughs> yeah, it, it depends on your pain. yeah. It depends on your approach towards it, I suppose. I mean, there is a regression. You could when when someone sets the bar high. I mean, this this is my approach to most things in life. I, I don't. I don't like to do things in a half measure, ever. And once I've seen something which has been done to the highest degree and I know that's possible, I won't settle for anything less. Um, 
and that carries over into into living history for me. When when you see the bar set high, you think, well, you know, that should be matched or even surpassed if possible. Um, you know, you want to still push boundaries. You want to try and make things the best you can. And you know, we, we spoke about this. Um, I can't remember if it was last night or the night before. I think there's been a few days in between. Um, but um, what what was mentioning is it's to do with people's approach towards it and what they want to carry over. And more than anything, you know, the, the best way to put it across is that living history and reenactment are really the middleman between the general public and academia. You're delivering things which they wouldn't really get to see, be that kind of reports in um, archaeological burial reports, site reports, whatever it is, um, things in museums. You're bringing it to life for the public. They don't really get to see that. Um, what they get is 13th warrior. They get Vikings. They yeah. get the other crap one which escapes me, which the BBC did. Can't oh yeah, the, the Last Kingdom. The Last Kingdom, yeah. that was it, yeah. Um, they get those things and they don't know if that's accurate or not. So it really, that kind of, the onus is on you to inform them. Um, and if you're going to do that, you should be honest about it. Um, whichever way you go, be honest about it. If you're saying that you are doing something, you know, this recreation is reflective of you know, be it a Frank, uh, you know, um, a Langobard, a, a Viking, you know, if you want to choose to use that term um, loosely. If, if, if you're going to say that that's what you're representing, you should be doing your best to, to stay up to date and say, and be accurate in that's what you're representing. Mm. More than anything, you should be doing what the evidence states is one of these not what your personal interpretation is. And this is what we were saying about, you know, when you said about things regressing, you get things, you get these crap programmes like Vikings coming out and people make this idea up in the head of what that means to them, um, to them personally. And they end up with this weird amalgamation of, you know, some things which might loosely be based on history or the emulation of other reenactors and it's kind of like Chinese whispers, really. Yeah. You know, what... that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Because uh, there's always been that, this Chinese whisper sort of effect on, um, on reenactment of living history, where people um, start doing things, but they're not quite sure why. Mm. And it's almost like a fashion thing. I remember when I was doing Viking reenactment, uh, there were people, for a time, people were wearing these bandanas, as yeah. if they were kind of some kind of pirates or something. And um, not long after, when Vikings came around, they started wearing, you know, this this eyeshadow and things like that. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's really sad because I think that uh, living history has never been better, and in in one regard, it's never been worse because it's kind of at this point, it mm. should be kind of inexcusable, maybe uh, in certain contexts. It's pushed if the it's... boundaries of the extremes at both ends. Yeah. Um, well, maybe not. I've seen some absolute crap from the 80s, which I'm glad has kind of fallen by the wayside. Yeah, we should maybe not stretch uh, stretch the critique too far. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. But you're correct, you know, these, these reenactors, they see someone else doing something, um, 
and they assume that that is the correct thing because it looks good to them and it fulfills their interpretation of what they'd like it to, you know, they'd like the interpretation to look like. So you end up with this mishmash of things which, you know, like I use the, the kind of Chinese whisper metaphor, it starts at something, It's every time it gets passed on it changes slightly and you know, they start using their own kind of reasoning for why it's this. And eventually the, the end product is so far away from um, any kind of academic source that it's just a caricature. And that is what, what it becomes. It becomes this gross caricature of what these cultures are. And at this point you're massively uh, misrepresenting, um, you know, history. And if these people don't know it, you may as well just sit around, watch Vikings and tell them that that's the gospel truth of what it's supposed <laughs> to be like. And it's just pointless. It's absolutely pointless. So yeah. you need to kind of, every now and then you need to sit down and think about what, you, what you're doing with it and what your purpose is and why you're reenacting it. You know, are you, are you reenacting to win a form or is that the secondary part of it? Because what you're really doing is having a bit of a social on a weekend with a piss up and essentially doing something which is closer to lap so you can just tit about with your mates and each other with sticks, yeah, essentially. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. And that's fine, you know, if you want, if you that, want to do and that. And that is yeah, fine, yeah. but just be honest about it. Yeah. You know, you, you need be honest with other people, members of the public, and be honest with yourself. There's nothing wrong with that if you want to, you know, dress up and then bang each other with swords over the weekend. Yeah. That, that's cool. Like, I've got no issue with that. That's perfectly fine. But be honest about it. It's always been like this, especially in reenactment, not necessarily living history. At least in, when I was doing Viking reenactment, you come into contact with people who are maybe they're looking for something to do on the weekend with their kids. And these Viking reenactment societies almost become like kind of a wholesome educational family activity. The other night I used the term cult of leisure. To many people, this is just like something that they do on their free time and they want to enjoy themselves. Which is yeah. fine, but yeah. you know, you, you when you're doing these things, you establish a group ethos. Yeah. And you need to be honest with people who are coming into the group about what it is you're setting out to do. You know, draw the guidelines for these things to begin with and then determine where you're going to fit into that. You know, even in wolf headedness, we've got a, a mix of people with a mix of abilities, and um, they do different things in the group. You know, not everyone's a warrior. Yeah, know, that might be the forward-facing part of the group, but we we have an LHG, um, and we have, you know, we do try to keep the the roles within the LHG accurate to the context of that time. Um, which you know might not be great if you're looking back with a, a retrospective feminist point of view on it, but it's it's accurate to the time. It's accurate to the gender roles of the time. Yes. But that doesn't make those people who are doing that any less valuable than the warriors because they have their own skills which mm. they've developed and they have their own crafts which are in, incredibly invaluable to what we do as a group, and they also are educators because when the members of the public come round. They're telling them about these crafts, they're telling them about the background of the crafts, the evidence of these crafts, and these people, you know, the people who choose to do that, whether it's in wolf-headedness or in, in other groups, whichever, they're just as important as warriors. Um, 
Warriors might give a bit of bang for the book for the people who are booking the actual events because that's what they usually sell it as. You yeah. Know, as it draws a crowd. It does yeah, draw yeah. a crowd. You, can, you can't get away from that. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people, when you do get books for these things, they're doing it for an event which has a revenue which they need to create. And, you know, Warriors do that. But personally, from an academic point of view and the value of a living historian, these other people round out the group. You know, you, it, it gets a bit tiresome. You, you turn up to events and you just see, you know, you just see Warriors all the time. Yeah, you kind of get a bit of fatigue with it. The Warriors is also like an aspect of uh, of the reenactment scene that many people get mm. into, and uh, and uh, the people often knock each other much about. Well, Fernandes doesn't do fighting shows, do you? <sighs> uh, why is that? Why don't you do fighting shows? It's a misnomer, really. Um, there's a few reasons behind this, and I suppose I'll fully explain this so we can get to the bottom of this now. Um, some of us do. Um, it's just, it's a case of opportunity and also circumstance. Because we've taken the time to kind of, you know, well, let's address the first thing which everyone says. And this, and when I say everyone, I mean other reenactors tend to say this about us. They go, oh, they're all wearing shiny kit. We don't want to get the shiny kit dinted up. Well, no, but I don't really want to come around to your house and kick your Porsche either, do I? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not something we're going to do. If you invest the money in it, and if we're being realistic, you know, we are playing a part. We're playing a part of these highly influential people who had a lot of money. Um, they could afford to replace these items. It's a little bit different when you pay, you know, for example... Three and a half thousand, four thousand pounds for a sword. It's not so easy to replace in this day and age. We're not actually kings, so we don't want to do it. Uh, we don't want to get the stuff, the kit damaged. But the other point is the kit with because we're living historians and we want to create things accurately. A lot of the kit's sharp. Um, you start swinging those things around, and you've got some first aid considerations to think about. So the, the, these things are, you know, the items we've, we, we use are created to cause damage. You know, it's, it's a legitimate weapon. Um, so that's the first part. No, we don't want to get our kit knocked up and damaged, really. Um, it's expensive. But it's sharp. We don't want to injure it. We don't want to injure each other and people, and we've got to be responsible about that. Um, the shows we do... We do a lot of museum shows, primarily, um, and we're there as educators. Really, we're not there as the kids' puppet show. We're not. We're not there to be just dragged out and you know, mummy, daddy, look at the two men beating each other up. Yeah, um, and I have to say, it's one of the critiques of Ferenas that I don't personally understand very well. Yeah, because. I mean, Regular fighting shows are not representative of real battles either. No, no, not in, not in the slightest. Um, you know, this is this is again, it's it's the honesty thing. Um, don't try and kid people that the reenactment shows are a good reflection of combat of the age. It's not. You you both have decided to engage in semi choreographed combat. Yeah, it's it might be in almost a sports sense of that, you know, it, it's semi-competitive what you're doing. 
but you've not got the actual threat of killing each other. You know, you're not literally pissing your pants at the fear that this person is coming to kill you. And that, that changes the parameters of what you're doing. If you're trying to survive, it changes the way you fight. It changes your technique. You know, it's it, it's the same as looking at something like, I don't know, Krav Maga to boxing. You know, one's made for a purpose and one's made for a sport. Um, and because of it, the techniques are different. Mm-hmm. So you've got to you've got to consider these different things, um, and then you've got to think, well, yeah, you know, you, you're doing certain things because you're not at risk of losing your hand. Um, so no, it's not accurate. Um, it's done as a sport. You see people walking off the battlefield smiling. Um, and I'm sure in the age there was probably some psychopaths who did walk off the battlefield smiling. But they're smiling because you're about to go to the, to the pub and sit down and talk about it and show off a couple of bruises to each other and joke about how Barry across the field hit you in the knee, which was really out of order. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's not accurate. Um, and that's a problem. You know, you've kind of got to face that. And, you know, be honest about it again, back to the honesty thing. Um, if you're truly being honest, it's, it's no more dangerous than a game of rugby, really. Um, but to go back to what, you know, back to that other point, yeah, Wolf Headness does fight. Mm. Some of us do fight. Some of us do have, you know, uh, period accurate blunts. And we, we've done combat at Mile Festival. Um, mm. And Mile, that's one of the, uh, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's, uh, is it the biggest? I don't know. Yeah, it, m- yeah. it might be actually. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a huge, uh, at least very important uh, living history festival in France. Yeah, that's they right. The, yeah, the, um, they actually cover a few different eras at different times. Yeah, they, they do. It depends yeah. depends which uh, which point it's um, being run at. Um, it, it alternates generally. I mean, it's a fantastic site. Uh, it's run by uh, Alan Nice, a good friend, a good friend of the group. Uh, his son Rafi and their group Malakertis. Um, doing my best to try and fit in good groups here while, <laughs> while I'm at it. Um, giving a few shout-outs. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a few of us, undoubtedly. Um, yeah, they, they run that site, and I mean, it's it's a recreation of um, of a period uh, village, and it's it's fantastic. It's a beautiful place. I really do recommend going and seeing it if, if anyone ever gets a chance. Um, but the Mile Festival itself... Um, is fantastic because it brings people together who are passionate about the period um, and you know for the most part the kit is of a good standard it's of a better standard than most reenactment you know all the different groups who go there they invest the time they're passionate they're on the same kind of wavelength um, and it's a good chance to inform the public in uh, a sensible way which really does put across the history um, and they've We've been careful about that, but yeah, what one one aspect of that, as well as the LHEs on the village, is a large choreographed battle, and again, it's the battles are in stages. Um, there's different there's different phases of the battle, but there is still a competitive part, and it does get a bit chaotic at times, and things <laughs> might not run quite as smoothly, um, which 
being how hot it is sometimes there ends up with you being severely dehydrated and sunburns were crisp. Um, yeah, I can imagine. You're coming there from, from the UK and you're wearing these Anglo-Saxon or Scandinavian warrior coats or heavy, lots of wool yeah, or, or leather. Or mail, sometimes wearing mail. Um, not too much leather. Uh, that's the bane of my dad's existence. Um, <laughs> yes. yes. But you yeah. see, dad made a horse leather warrior coat, did he not? And he did, yeah. It was an interesting experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, yeah, he's going to hate me saying this, but it, when he puts it on, it looks like some kind of Vendel S&M. A little bit sexy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, good, good old David Huggins. Yeah. Sexy typical. man. <laughs> Yeah, don't tell him that. But yeah, it's the kit you're wearing when you're out in that blistering heat and you're doing this kind of large scale, um, large scale battle. Oh God, it takes out of you. Which also, you know, I know I've just gone on for ages about saying about how unrealistic combat is, but it does give you an impression of um, what it'd be like to fight in that heat. And if you was the, the, even without the kind of the fear of projectiles and genuine sharp weapons the physical exertion of those conditions it saps you and it saps you quickly um it, it, doing something prolonged just takes you close to the point of exhaustion and death um but yeah we do do <laughs> back, back to the original point we do do combat um we, <laughs> yeah. we do occasionally hit each other with sticks and swords and all the other bits and pieces and throw stuff at each other and fire stuff at each other. Um, we just don't really brag about it, yeah. which is the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> it's an, I think it's an, a sort of important aspect of these shows too, because hey, it draws the public and of many of the organisers yeah, of kind of demand it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's also, at least it serves to underline the importance of that aspect in those martial societies. I think. Yeah. You can't get away from that. Um, you know, you, it's just a problem of overselling it sometimes. Um, mm. It becomes the primary concern of uh, of groups and in some cases a primary concern of the, the promoters who are booking the shows. And it takes away from the value of the real, true artistic depth of creativity and the intricacies of the cultures which are producing these things. Um, it's beautiful implements of death and ostentatious peacocking displays in what they're wearing. And not just in, not just in the, the martial parts of their lives. Um, they were fantastic craftspeople. I've, um, I've been in, um, I've witnessed actually the opposite happening once where an organizer actually one year didn't invite any fighting groups. It was at the, the Avalsnes Viking Festival, uh, down where Axelon... The Blissful Dream. Yeah, it sounds like it in theory, but yeah. of course I don't think that uh, they had anything... Like, I think the idea was basically that they were going to make it more family friendly. Mm. Uh, and this was one person's idea of, of, of a family friendly event. And uh, completely overruled all senses, I think, in that case. Yeah. You can't get away from the fact that these were violent times. Yeah. And you shouldn't shy away from that. Um, yeah, if, if you're under the illusion that it wasn't a violent time, then perhaps people should 
kind of reevaluate the reason why they're interested in that part of history at all. Yeah, I mean, I know you mentioned on a previous podcast, you know, um, how do you excuse the brutality of these people and how do you, what you're recreating in some cases are violent psychopaths and how would you kind of come to terms with that's what you're displaying you're displaying yeah. these brutal violent people that's your recreation with them um, you know any more than any other period of history how, how would you go about reenacting Pol Pot yeah or Idi Amin or something like that they, they're no different really these people in, in the psychology you know, they've got to the positions by being brutal people the idea, the more modern idea of a social contract, it goes back. You know, they, they do protect their people, but at the expense of guaranteeing security and order, and keeping order really in those in those times meant being a fearsome individual, being someone who could who could maintain order by the threat of violence. Yeah, it's. I think it's uh, to criticize. Uh... Iron Age society is a modern luxury. That, uh... Absolutely. But then, you know, it, it's somewhat laughable, really, because looking back and criticising people for being violent is... It's hypocritical in some circumstances because the only difference now is that the people who have the luxury of criticising them have just proxied their violence to other people. They yeah. have other people who, who commit violence for them. The idea that these are non-violent people. Well, they're non-violent, you know, people now are non-violent because they proxy their violence to the police. If someone disobeys or does something they don't like or something illegal or something against them, they have the police intervene yeah. and the police is the state's violence. And, you know, if you was going tit for tat, they can escalate it to the point where if you keep stepping up levels, the police really have the option of shooting and killing you. <laughs> and it's just the same. It's just the same, except it doesn't have a personal level of involvement anymore, but you still have that same level of violence being able to be carried out by the state if absolutely necessary. Yeah, the big difference is that, like in in uh, in prehistoric Scandinavian society, you were expected to police yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, if, you know, like... Using the kind of the common understanding in some respects that if if a, a a personal slight was made against you, you had to stand up. Your honour was bound to that. Um, you had to prove yourself. It's a lot more brutal, more like a more like a prison really. That your reputation depends on your ability to back yourself up, um, or have someone do it for you in some circumstances. But it's it's still there, it's prevalent. These people, you can't criticise these people because that was the culture they lived in. Any more than that, if you looked at our cultures 50 years ago, the people who were involved in our cultures 50 years ago thought they were right at the time and they'd criticise everything. My hometown was immensely violent, even in my teens, but uh, 100 years before that, even more perhaps. Yeah, it's subjective. All of it is subjective. Um, it's, you know, it's ever-evolving morality but if we start going into that we're going right down the rabbit hole oh yeah uh, we watched the UFC yesterday yeah and uh, you've been a kickboxer do you still do that or uh... um I've got a somewhat extensive background with martial arts um 
I'd kind of, in my absolute going back youth, I'd, I'd been introduced to karate first and then I didn't really do much with that because I was a young kid and I just was more interested in just dancing around the room instead and then got bored and did other things. But in my late teens, I went back to I went back to martial arts and I started kickboxing for a while then I got into... If I'm putting it in context, the kind of re-emergence, the second wind of martial arts came when I'd walked into a... Um, I'd walked into, in, my, in my teens into this DVD store. I think it might... Yeah, it was a DVD store. DVDs had just come out and I was looking up and there was this DVD on the top shelf in it. It struck me because it was an 18. Um, it was an 18 rated DVD. And on the front were all these martial arts. And it said... Um, they were always very enticing. You know? Yeah, yeah. Anything <laughs> yeah. like that. Next to it was also like this this zombie DVD, which was an 18. No, it was a VHS actually next to it. And it was um, Dawn of the Dead. And that's another story entirely, but it was the same oh, yeah. kind it's of... It's an amazing movie. The though. same yeah. kind of appeal, <laughs> yeah. It had an eighteen on it, and it was like on a top shelf, and I was like, "Oh, brilliant! Yeah, I've got to, got to get my hands on that." Which I did, but that's, like I said, it's another story. Back to, yeah, the martial arts one was UFC number two. Being quite young in my teens, but looking older, I thought, right, I can have that. Once I've got a bit of money and I remember to come in, I'll get it. So, I did, and I watched it, and it was, it was, pretty brutal. There wasn't many rules back in the UFC um, <laughs> at all, if if any rules. Um, but it left a lasting impression um, and then like I said I'd gone on I'd started um, teaching well not teaching at that point sorry um, I started learning kickboxing and then I'd gone to, um, to find out about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and back to that UFC DVD I watched the guy who won it was um, a guy called Hoist Gracie um, particularly famous in, in mixed martial arts um, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he kind of established a legacy but that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuck with me and later on as the UFC developed and mixed martial arts developed the synergy between a lot of different styles Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was always prevalent um, so yeah I found a place where I could train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I thought oh, this is this is excellent I can get right into this and I did um, so I'd kind of carried on from that point um, started training and then started competing as well um, grappling competitions and then moved into MMA like oh, as the layman's term cage fighting oh, that's, yeah it's a good term though it's, 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 a, it's a brutal term and it, it kind of sells itself a little bit short sometimes when you put it like that because there's a lot of technique and there's a lot of things to consider about it all but Regardless, it was cage fighting. It was then mixed martial arts, um, and I'd started competing in that. Um, competed for a number of years, um, and then really after that, slowly started making the transition into um, just kickboxing and uh, my Thai. And then after still kind of training for a few years, I got to a point where I ended up. Um, teaching one of the classes which I'd started attending and that, that pretty much brings me up to date where um, I've still got an interest in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts, UFC but I'm really at a stage where all I'm really doing currently at this moment is just teaching kickboxing everything else but yeah I'm still I'm still active still doing a lot of things like that and 
still trying to keep up with the UFC and still watch it, which brings <laughs> us wrong to last night. Yeah, as I'm totally new to the UFC, uh, I, you know, I staggered drunkenly home and I, yeah. I, I wrote my friends back in Norway and uh, I told them I'd seen uh, UFC. You know, I was just uh, totally amazed by the display of power that I saw there and uh, they were just sort of rolling their eyes, you know, welcome <laughs> after. <laughs> They've been on this for years. Yeah. Uh, totally crazy to just see that primal rawness mm. in, in action. And, Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, uh, I think one reason why it appealed to me uh, is because uh, when I was younger, I got the shit beaten out of me a few times. You know, <laughs> We've anytime. all been through that and, point and, at and, some point. And, and, yeah. yeah, but not everyone has, I think. And um, uh, it was a useful experience for me, probably also because I didn't actually get seriously hurt, you know, mm. but it was enough to kind of scare me a little bit. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, get confronted with that scare at a young age has certain I don't want to romanticize it necessarily but but I think that it made me uh, a more mature person mm. having been through that and to see uh, violence maybe in a new light and also maybe that drove me to kind of appreciate the, the sport in this yeah. uh, in a way that I otherwise might not have done because sports don't really appeal to me at all no, but there was something about this neither. I thought that was very interesting um, yeah. and a little bit uncomfortable but also very uh, satisfying to watch yeah. yeah it's like what you said it's it's I think it's very primal yeah um, and as much as a lot of people don't like to admit it it it, it is satisfying to see and in some respects it's satisfying to take part on in it's um it can end up ticking boxes for you, um, when you when you're competing and watching it because I think it's so deeply ingrained into our psyche. You know, we've spent thousands, thousands of years picking up things and beating each other up with them, and one degree or another, we are undeniably a violent race. We have this kind of natural go-to of committing violence and you can see it through the you know through our ancestors and you excavate graves you know even graves all the way back to mesolithic where they've really visited on upon each other some horrific injuries some really really truly brutal injuries not just in a physical sense but in an ideological sense as well some some pretty horrible things yeah, um, people can be absolutely horrendous. To oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When they really want to be nasty, they can be really nasty. But this, it sits into. I think it sits into the human psyche. Um, I won't go as far to say it sits into prime, just the male psyche. But I think it does sit into it a little bit more. I think, you know, the testosterone gazes up to be a little bit that way out. Many people get really uncomfortable with these uh, subjects, especially if they haven't fought in those uh, lines before. I think that being confronted with this, especially like if you're, you've gone your whole life kind of sheltered from it, then it's it's seen as this very scary thing. Well, then yeah, you've got the you've got the luxury on putting yourself on a moral pedestal, but you can see it as being beneath you. But it's something quite natural and it's unpleasant. But you've got to be honest about it. You know, I wrote my, my master's thesis about Thor and one of the things that I noticed there was that in, in the research literature, or rather 
not academic articles, but often in handbooks in Norse mythology. Yeah. That was my case study in reading handbooks of Norse mythology and seeing how they characterized Thor. And uh, one thing I noticed is that they often tend to describe him as being unintelligent or dumb. <laughs> and when I started, the, the other part of my MA was to go through the sources, every source that mentions Thor. Yeah. I had to go through all the sagas. I had to sit and like collect them all in a big like word document and search mm-hmm. through thousands upon thousands of conglomerations of the the thorn sound, the O and the R. And yeah. of course, everybody in Iceland and the Viking age apparently is called Thor something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of false positives. Yeah. Um, oh, and, I don't uh, yeah, that. But that's that's beside the point. But. One thing that I noticed there is that Thor is never really described as being stupid. Not explicitly, at least. So it's retrospective? Yeah. I think that the bottom line there is that we live in a society where using violence to reach some sort of goal is considered to be uh, something lesser mm-hmm. uh, than using your brain. So we tend to, like, like Odin is a god of wisdom, you know, you can't really mm-hmm. dispute that. But he comes across as a much more likable, intelligent, cunning character to us because he doesn't always go out with full force, as Thor does. And Thor is kind of dumbed down because he is this macho character. But he also comes from a society that did not mind violence as a tool to get yeah. what they wanted. As really? long as it was regulated in some way. Yeah, yeah. Um... And honor and shame was, I guess, one very often. Aspect. Yeah, it, it always has some form of regulation with violence because if we let everyone loose as psychopaths, we have a breakdown in a cohesive society. Yeah. Um, so violence really is something which, again, it's contextually subjective, um, and opinions will always change on violence and what that means. Uh, depending on the time or the location of, of these approaches towards it. Um, but violence or acts of violence don't make someone unintelligent. All you have to do, for example, is look at Bruce Lee. He's a great philosopher, um, an intelligent man, and someone who is extremely capable at violence. Um, there's an old saying which I can't remember off the top of my head it's about having um, warriors and politicians and politicians and warriors and the division between the two is essentially a bad prospect. I can't remember. I'm not doing this quote any justice whatsoever. But you need people who understand the two and who can appreciate the consequence of violence but also appreciate the necessity of violence. Um, these two things go together. You know, just just being apt at violence does not make you a stupid person. And I think it was a much more balanced view of those things um, historically. Um, the fact that we we're shying away from it now really is mm. it's more of a reflection of the fact that we we believe not that weakness should be elevated, but that people who are weak deserve more of a start which is a good thing you know there needs to be a place for that and in some some ways you know it's it's relatively progressive um, but we shouldn't get away that, that shouldn't come at the loss of understanding what violence is and what the purpose of it is 
one of the problems perhaps with um, with some modern conceptions of violence is that it sometimes comes to the to the rescue of the bully rather than the mm. victim because it um, it often fails to empower uh, the victims or actually makes victims of people who don't necessarily need to see themselves that way. But then, what about the people who the people who come to the aid of a victim against the bully? It's still the same use. Then mm. it can it can be used for defence of of weaker people. Yeah, that's well. what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, you you can lose sight of, of those things. It's it's all about responsibility. Um, but it's like the playground thing, you know. You tell yeah, them, uh, absolutely. You know, go go speak to an adult. You know, well, very very often speaking to adults doesn't really deter the bully necessarily. No, no. And if um, if the bully has no regard for the authority of that person they're not going to stop. The only thing which is going to stop that person isn't going to be harsh words. It's going to be the enforcement of parameters, of yeah. boundaries. And eventually that means some form of some form of violence. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's physical violence, but it's the enforcement of either taking something away from them or taking them away from everyone else, and usually that has to be by force, so there is the degree of violence in that. I think that, for instance, in North society there is an appreciation or like a, a capability to, uh, to intellectualise these things in a, in a way that many modern societies aren't willing yeah. to do, maybe. And, but the, also, at the same time, they do have vocabulary to describe people who are using force un, unnecessarily, you know, yeah. who are using it excessively or are using it for bad, yeah. bad things. And they have punishments for them. Yeah. You know, there's, there's punishments for people who do these things and these people become seen as, you know, something bordering monsters. They become outcasts. Yeah, they get yeah. dehumanised. Norwegian law codes uh, states that uh, they shall become like wolves, you know, in the, in the sacred yeah. enclosure. Yeah, exactly. Wolves in the front. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly drifted from well, the topic yes. of living history at that yeah, point, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we did. But it's an interesting... Uh, yeah, so. it's something but, which needs talking about. But yeah, okay, one more thing, I think. Uh, and, okay, so we've discussed the importance of historical accuracy. Mm. Because I think we can agree that we think living history should be about educating the public and being the middle, yeah. uh, the middle ground between the public and academia. Yeah. I think that one thing that can be very frustrating, especially for younger reenactors who are getting really just into the game right now, how do they find a way? What which advice would you give to somebody who wants who wants to do good? Because uh, we all know that there are always so many Not temptations listen, yeah. on the way, right? Not to listen to anything that Stu says <laughs> on the internet. Stu? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Got among trolls. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Member member of Wolf Fitness who's uh, also a notorious trickster. Online, yeah. Yes. Speaking of social media presence. Yeah. Remember he even tro- he trolled Brute Norse the other day. Did he? Yeah, I had to. Sh- I had- <laughs> he's um. I think it's safe yeah. to point out at this point that every even though he's a member of Wolf Fitness, everything he does is absolutely off his own back. As as <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd like to point out as well that anything. Our stance towards the group is that. Anyone who does or says anything is 
they're entirely representative of their beliefs. Mm. As a collective, there's no, there's nothing which we do which is unless it, we state it's the group's belief, and then yeah. you take it on a massive responsibility saying that. That brings it back to uh, the group ethos thing, mm. because that was when when Axel and I were doing more of this migration era living history and Roman era stuff. Uh, we just started doing it on our own. And because I think we realized that we needed, instead of participating in some of the other organizations that were around, we realized yeah. that at some point you can't exclude people who are already there, right? You have to create your own cosmos, yeah. in a sense. I think that's true, yeah. And maybe that's, that's an advice for young budding groups to just, you know, yeah. associate with those who have the same I ethos mean, as yourself. So far, my, my contribution to that's been don't listen to Stu. But if I'm being, if I'm being serious about it, um, it does actually play in a little bit. Um, if you're going to do something and you're going to create something, you know, be it your first attempt or whatever it is, um, don't emotionally attach yourself. I mean, it's, it's hard to not emotionally attach yourself to something you create. Um, but don't be afraid of criticism from people. Um, be open-minded about it. You will get things wrong. Um, and, you know, sometimes the criticism can feel a bit harsh, and a little bit savage at times. If you've made a lazy attempt towards something, where you've just picked something up and you've, you've looked at what other people are doing and you've just half-assed copied it, you, you, might, you might get a savage comment about it. But so long as the person isn't just turning around and saying, that's a pile of shit, um, if they leave you with something else, take it on board. But more than anything, do your research. Um, Wolf Headness don't have, don't, well, don't really have access to anything what other people don't. Um, yeah. It's just how much time you're willing to put into your research. Um, are you going to pick up the first book, look at the first piece of information and base everything off that? Or are you going to do something in depth? Um, are you going to look at a wealth of research and see if there's patterns which emerge which will inform what you're doing you know but this is the thing when you're looking at re when you're researching your kit don't listen to what like Barry who spends the majority of the weekend pissed out his mind is saying about what you should be wearing and how everything looks cool when it's rusted because that's what warriors do um, no do your research like look at books look at archaeological reports um if there's evidence for it, you know, within context, because archaeologists do get things wrong as well, um, look at look at patterns which develop through through the different contexts. But just try and be accurate. And when you do, you know, ask other people, um, ask other people what they think. Get opinions on things. The opinions don't have to mean everything. Um, you know, sometimes people say things, and you you, you can. Even though you've listened, you don't have to do what they're saying. Mm. Um, but be prepared to be criticised on things and don't take it to heart. Um, which, which again, you know, if, if you're going to do reenactment, don't be an asshole who takes yourself super, super, super serious. You know, be serious about what you're doing, but don't let that inform your personality or your identity. Of, more than anything, don't let it inform your identity of who you are. As yeah. a person outside of reenactment, yeah, get over you know. yourself. Yeah, it, 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 no one matters that much. So even when someone gives you a piece of criticism, and you know, 
they don't have any great um, social standing than you. It's another person. They might have more knowledge. They may well do. They might have been researching it for longer. But don't take it to heart. Um, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, there will be there will be a point where someone is an ass. Reenactment and living history has got it's it's made up of people, and inevitably you will find people who are total dicks. But in all honesty, there's never a shortage of those people. You will find them. Yeah, um, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy it. Enjoy what you're doing. Find a passion for it. Um, find what you enjoy. Try and keep a context. Keep an, a narrow. A narrow scope of what you're aiming to do and reevaluate what it is every so often you know set yourself goals with your kit if, if that's what you're doing if, if you're putting kit together and set yourself these goals and come back to them and think right am i doing this have i done that stay up to date with your research um, something else come out which changes it don't make a piece of kit and then in five years time assume that it's still correct because research changes and then you know it, it might it, it might be wrong. When when we started the group of Wolf Edness, we kind of became known for wearing the helmets, but more than anything, we we kind of got known for wearing the wolf skins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah like yeah. wolf skins was like, it wasn't a thing which was really being done at the time. Um, and I hate the idea of saying that it was like a, tran- a trend-setting thing. Mm. But then a lot of people started wearing wolf skins after that. But we don't wear them now because, you know... We're, we're not impervious to not making mistakes, but to things. And there wasn't really, really the evidence of it being worn. You know, there's there's references towards certain things. There's yeah. references in, in literature. Depictions, yeah. but and, it's... Uh, you know, yeah. the chosen the chosen warriors wearing it. And there are, there are references, but there's no... There's nothing there in any of the depictions... Apart from arguably the ones um, of the uh, wolf heading warriors yeah. from from the plates, like the Torslunder, yeah. for example, and that's unclear. Um, it's unclear. Yeah, but, so we're not uh, sure what it depicts. No, really, yeah. we, we don't. We don't quite know what they're getting at. I assume that that's what it is. But my point is, we've kind of cast away wearing the wolf skins. Mm. No, it's not something we wear as much because, you know, we can't excuse it when someone asks. We can't just like, yeah, we think it looks cool because we'd be hypocritical. But we did do it, and now we don't. Where are these wolves going to start? Are they tea cosies for you guys? <laughs> it's my uh, Wednesday night sexy wear. <laughs> no, um, we, we still have them, and they still make, you know, good set dressings, and on a certain, you know, on, on the odd occasion, we'll wear them um, if, if the context calls for it, if we are depicting that kind of aspect of... You know a certain chosen part, but we've 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 moved away from it. But I can guarantee that you you're still going to see other people wearing it in reenactment. You will, and that, yeah. this is the other thing: they're not wearing wolf skins. They're all bloody wearing coyotes. It's <laughs> rare that you find people wearing wolf skins because they're hard to find. They're expensive. Uh, in my old reenactment group back home at Carmel, there's one guy uh, came across a wolf skin by. By accident, almost. It was a wolf that had been shot in Norway at some point, mm. and uh, the skin was for sale. I, I don't know where he got it, but it turned it into like something he could actually wear, like with a hat, like uh, sort of like the Torslunda. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's many interpretations for how to wear. 
Yeah, it's the earliest one that I'm aware of. I think mm. that he must have done this maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, so. which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's good about people doing things. Well, we're, we're certainly in no context of saying that we're we're the first people to do stuff. We just kind of end up being better known, I suppose. Yeah, it's all social media again. Whenever you see somebody making a really good piece of kit, you always feel like, how could this be topped? Mm. But you guys always seem to be able to push it a little bit further with uh, hand-woven textiles and the better combinations of colors and things like that. It's always developing. It's so fascinating to see. But I remember back in like 2006 with the Ulfetnar guys, I saw it. I just thought, how can this be topped? But now, you know, they have developed since then, of course, too. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult. Um, in some ways, you can only... Uh, you can only recreate the archaeology and there's only going to be, you know, there's an end point to that, of yeah. what they can find. So you can only make, the, you can recreate the things which, which are there. Um, we've, I, w- I am going to get wrong to answering what you're actually saying, but my, <laughs> yeah. my point I'm trying to get at is there are limitations you've got to recognise. There's only a certain amount of Vendel helmets which have been, well, Vendel helmets, which have been found, Vendel, Valsierda, that series of helmets. You can only make so many of them yeah. before you start getting into the realms of conjecture, of of fitting the other loose plates which have been found on something conjectural, which is nothing wrong with that, as long as you're honest about it again. Mm. But my point is, you've got a limited resource to recreate. So then it becomes about trying to recreate it to the best possible ability you can, to the closest possibility and the closest uh, the closest way you can to the originals. So it's refining what you've got and that's slowly what we've done. We've, we've built up certain things and now it's a case of refining it, trying to get more and more accurate really. Um, like you said, it, we've, had, we've had these helmets for years um, my father had the uh, one of the earliest recreations of um, what's here this as five sorry seven, mm. um, and he had it for years and it was it was a, a a really good piece of work especially for the time it was created it's it's one of the earliest ones and it turns up in quite a lot of older books um, it's the one which is consistently misrepresented as Viking on oh, yes, of yes, crap yes, Viking yes. books. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it wasn't, that helmet wasn't correct. Um, there was small details of it which were still off. Mm. So he had it remade more recently, the last two years maybe. Mm. Um, and he had it made correctly. He had the garnets fitted into the eyebrows. Um, which it didn't have before. But it's an amazing dedication, though, to have an already expensive recreation of a helmet and then just decide, instead of going, just moving on to another helmet, he revisits the old one. Yeah. I mean, it's an expenditure, but then once you've spent the money, it's already gone. Yeah. You, know, it's, it's, you, could sell, you can sell the helmet on and get some of it back in some regards, but it's going to be less. But, you know, that money's gone. You don't tend to miss it. Um the money I spent on a sword, the money seems almost immaterial now. Um, yeah. And you end up inevitably getting more money at some point and get something new. 
But it's the your commitment. time maybe helps though. The waiting time yeah. does help because if it was like, oh, I only bought this sword six six months ago and was getting a new one now, that would be much more problematic. Yeah. How long did you wait for your sword? Four years. Four years. Four years. I mean, I'll be. That's another thing here that it takes a lot of patience to be this good. I will. This comes with a disclaimer, but the sword I'm picking up, um, it was created by Jeff Helms, a fantastic craftsman, really, really top quality. Uh, He's living in Canada. Um, I told him when he started making that, I said, you make it in your own time, at your own pace. When you feel that you want to do work on the sword, you do work on the sword. Um, absolutely don't pressure yourself. I want the best out of it. So work at your own pace when you're happy. And I said, and if other pieces of work come up in the meantime, you want a break, take it. Um, take the break and come back to it. Um, do what you need to do to create the best finished piece. And the sword did go through a process. The blade got remade um, at least twice, I think. Mm. Um, and then the um, he remade some of the hilt fittings um, and got back round to that. Um, so it it was a process, you know. These things are processes, um, and that was you know a four year process. But it's it's you play a long game with this. When this, this I think this is important to understand as well. Um, this is something to clear up. These things are expensive, especially in all fedness, the recreations we make are expensive. And it's not, you're not buying everything off a peg in one go. These are projects. Mm. These are projects of years. And by the time you might think you've finished it, you know, you've finally finished your grave assemblage, you realise one of the things which I did maybe five years ago when I started it isn't quite the way I want it. So I'm going to re-refine an original part of the kit so it's somewhat circular it, mm. it never really finishes it properly you kind of go back and revisit it revisit your kit in the same way which my dad did with the with Valsgaard 7 helmet um, these things aren't instantaneous they can't mm. be they're too expensive so you've got to you know pe- people see it when, when they see our, our bits of pieces of kit and they're like oh you know it, look, it looks great it must have taken loads of money and you know, you've just managed to do all this in one go and all this stuff. Well, it's not. It's it's a work, a consistent work. Yeah. I guess Wolf Hedinas is one of those groups that does such an extensive job and it makes everybody else look like underachievers in a way. But I think that one thing that is important to, to sort of state in all this is that making mistakes in haste and making a kit that is not as good Mm. can be just as expensive as making an immensely great kit, especially if it's a soft kit. And you can make really awful kits that end up being more expensive. Yeah, I mean, there's the old saying, you know, buy right, buy once. And if you've done your research, you're saving yourself a hassle. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen someone, oh, like they come on a forum, oh, brilliant, I've... I've just spent like three hundred and fifty pounds on this brilliant sword. Look at it, and then a bunch of people turn around and go, "Actually, your sword's a piece of shit. Yeah. It's not good." And then they must be sat there at home, just like absolutely disheartened and thinking. That's a classic uh, market situation, isn't it? Somebody who is uh, 
maybe fresh in the game, you know, they're eager to get yeah, all the kids yeah. together. And so they they think they're doing a bargain, but in the end they're doing themselves a disservice. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, because we didn't, we didn't put the research in at the time. We didn't really look at it. And we don't really understand what quality is, which, again, it's one of them things where you can ask people. Ask people who's doing good stuff. Um, and you will find reliable sources. Um, I, I keep going back to them, but a, a lot of people seem to ask my dad about stuff. He's not some kind of vast encyclopedia of knowledge on everything. You know, every, everything has limitations. But he's been around a long time, mm. and he has got a good bit of knowledge. But more than anything, he he's always on the lookout for new craftsmen. He's he's got a good eye for them. So he knows who's good. He knows who's producing good stuff, and he can see it. Even he can see the spark in craftsmen just as they come in, just as they're starting out. He can see which direction they're gonna go. Yeah. And he he does a lot to he does a lot to, if he if he recognizes passion in people he he stokes that passion and he brings it on. Mm. Um, you know, there's reenactment. We should all collectively be aiming. To bring it on together, really, um, we don't have a, you know, I think some people get a little bit put out thinking we have a monopoly on the on the period. We don't. We just have a large social media presence. We wouldn't want a monopoly on the period. Although you know, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't bum me out a little bit when I see someone who's just made a piece of kit which I've just spent loads of money on, yeah. and they've just done the same thing, and I just think ah. Oh, because we do with everyone, you know, it's natural to kind of want to hang on to something and have like a, an idea of exclusivity. Yeah. Like that's how we are as people. But, you know, there's... People will compare it to, you know. Yeah. Because yeah, so. with Sutton Who, that Paul Mortimer has sort of, like, that's sort of become his thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's very Absolutely. difficult for other people too. But, you yeah. know, I think he's an extraordinary circumstance because... The, the Sutton Who assemblage is so vast that to recreate that um, in its entirety into a quality is a vast amount of money. And the, the this is the other thing. The prices of creating these things go up. You know, it might be small steps, but they do go up and they get more expensive because craftsmen realise the value of the time yeah. Um, so recreating something like the Sutton who was hard work, I think it, you'd be hard, you'd be very hard pressed to create something like that. That is the Sutton Hill grave assemblage is exceptional, but there's other there's other groups. You know, we started out creating um, Vendel, a lot of the Vendel stuff, Valsiada stuff, um, but the there's local Swedish groups now. Um, hmm. I'm probably a, a bashing for not saying this right, but um, Utahaya. Yeah. yeah. I got again. I'm probably saying that wrong. But it's those guys, those guys are doing it now, hmm. and those guys are creating some of the same things we have, um, and there's certainly no enmity towards them for doing that. Um, oh, I think it's, it's great that Scandinavia yeah. is getting its own. Groups the fact that, that they're getting, a, you know, this awakening to this, like stunning material culture and this stunning like earlier culture and seeing past just the limitations of Viking period which has become so entwined with this representation and idea of Scandinavian culture but yeah. it's good that this you know this 
this period, which which I call our period, I call it that because of you know our love for it, not because of an ownership of it. Um, it's great that local groups to the area are doing it, and you know those guys, um, you know the two Chris's and the rest of the group are doing a fantastic job. But you can look at their kit and you can see the stuff they're doing. The quality of their kit is fantastic because they're doing it the right way. They're putting the research in first. You know, there's the other Langobardic groups as well in Italy, which are um, are producing some fantastic kit, you know, uh, Lafara and so on, because they've, they do the research. They're going about things right. Um, you know, I say going about things right, like there's a definite right way of going yeah, about yeah. things. But they're doing things accurately. They're being yeah, honest. they're doing something right. They've yeah. got a good recipe. They've, yeah. they're, they're being honest with it and they're doing the research, which I think is important, personally. If, if they're going to say that this is a representation of what of that culture, do it justice. And they are doing that. And it's great. And, I'm you know, I love, I love seeing this scene grow. I love, you know... As much as I like, you know, turning up and getting new bits of kit and seeing new bits of kit appear and getting excited about a craftsman making me something, when you go to these big festivals, especially things like Mile, and you see other people wearing, like, these awesome bits of kit um, or producing stuff, it's just as impressive for me and I get just as excited as, you know, some, arguably some people get excited when they see all fedness. You know, um, in what way we're you know flick switches for them. When I get to see it in other people, you know, I'm still a history nerd myself. I don't put myself on any podium, or none of the group do. But so when we see other people doing it, we get just as excited about seeing them. You know, we want to see them do it. We want to see it expand more people in there, um, taking just sharing a passion, more than anything. I said that uh, that was like going to be our last thing but yeah we've uh, certainly gone on beyond that <laughs> yeah but uh you do you mentioned your dad yeah. and, and your dad is obviously also one of the co-founders of this group mm-hmm. it was interesting to see this generational thing going yeah, on yeah yeah uh but uh would you say that he was because I, I was wondering how you got into this uh <laughs> history thing is, is it the curse of my dad? father yeah <laughs> <laughs> no um no and yeah no Let's see where to start with that. Well, yeah, he's he's always been interested. My, my father had this great love of history from being a child. Um, I remember him telling me about reading the old Ladybird history books and having a fascination with history. And um, as soon as like reenactment appeared on the scene in the early eighties, um, he was interested. He was there, and he was his involvement with. Um, I might be wrong. I think it was Reggie Anglorum at the time. Mm, yeah, one of the big yeah, yeah big old, big uh, big old Viking groups. reenactment yeah. groups. Um, not not just Viking Saxon as well. And, oh yes, you yeah. know, um, later Sa- later Saxon. I'll just point that out. Um, and he had this interest, and he went along, and he, he was doing stuff with them, uh, from even even possibly previous to me being born. So I was, in some respects, born into his born into reenactment and living history. Um, I mean, I remember uh, being a kid. My, my earliest memories of like reenactment was wearing was being like a really young kid, um, and having these horrible, 
horrible like woolen trousers and woolen tunic and I remember being this is just a particular story I remember yeah (laughs) but I remember being really young and my parents had sent me to go and get some coffee from like the local like um you know, like those burger van kind of things. So I'd gone to get these coffees, and I, m- I must have been maybe like, I don't know, six years old or something. Maybe about that age, maybe even younger. And they'd sent me to get these two cups of coffee for, for each of them. And they were like scalding hot coffee, like boiling up. And I was walking back to the campsite with them, and like I was kind of like walking back and trying not to spill them because every time they, they spilled a little bit it burned my fingers and um, I was dying for the toilet but I didn't want to rush myself any faster because I was burning my hands so in the end I ended up just pissing myself <laughs> on one of the walk back with burnt hands and crying so I've been this kid crying with burnt hands and pissed trousers um, and just having to like go back to like the, the reenactors campsite with the tent and hanging out with these horrible pissy trousers and having Jesus burnt hands. <laughs> it's, it's... I, but I still got their back. I got back and I brought them coffees <laughs> and that's the only thing. Man, which... man of honour even then. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like uh, it sounds like a turning point from a saga, like a saga hero's childhood. <laughs> Minus the coffee. Yeah, yeah, one of his one of the many tasks. One of, one of the ordeals <laughs> we've got to endure. <laughs> Yeah, the the ordeal of coffee. Um, so yeah, I grew up with it from a young age, and then um, I'd, I'd gone to all these different shows with you know like Reggae and everything, and um, and that had like a long history. Uh, I'd gone to like local shows. I remember doing something at Hornsey where we got dropped off by like the the. Uh, RNLI, the lifeguards, where they, they pulled us up to the beach on these speedboats for some reason, jumping off these speedboats in like warrior's kit. And <laughs> as we jumped off, I didn't realise like how deep the water was. <laughs> so I just went completely under the water and it disappeared. And then I had to like find myself staggering out the waves, like probably looking like some kind of like bedraggled creature from the Black Lagoon. And then stumbling up the beach and starting a fight in front of this like to be honest it's like massive massive crowd and it just must have looked ridiculous <laughs> and that was like my first my first goal with combat I think I was 13 at the time and then I had a big I had a big pause from that um, I had a big break you know teenage years where you find out about other things um, and then I came back to it when I was 19 um, at the time we was involved with a Viking group which uh, my father had helped set up like a local Viking group um, and we were doing our own thing really separate with that uh, with, with other members but that got me back into it um, and my involvement and my appreciation had grown at that point and you know inspired by seeing other people like 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 Fedner um, continentally Time or Fedna, and then we'd gone with this Viking group across to Mao, and it kind of opens your eyes about what's going on on the continent, what other people are doing. And there's some amazing events down there. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an oppor- you know these things are an opportunity to like socially network with other people, and you know as it went, 
my my father's interest had already been there with the with the Vendel stuff. Um, he he already had the Valskar seven at this point, um, and we just turned a point where we just veered away from the Viking period and were meeting other people who were like you know making budding advances into that the period then. Um, this was you know this was eleven years ago now. Um, Old Fedner had already started doing that themselves, but we was going down the route of the Vendel stuff while they were doing a lot of the Alemannic Frankish stuff. Um, bits and pieces from kind of like uh, continental Germany and France, mm. around that region. But we'd gone up north and just done the stuff earlier to Viking period from Scandinavia. Um, but yeah, we, we took it on board from there and we carried on. I had my involvement. We started meeting myself and my father. We'd met people like Paul. Mm. Um, Steve Pollins and Dave Roper um, and that's when we we set up what had become Wolf Edness and we started you know um, other people started coming into the group uh, Alex Haig uh, Matt Bunker who Matt Bunker had like um, quite a large background with reenactment up to that point already and mm. um, with other groups and, and it had obviously had an interest um, in our period um, you know, Matt joined and it just expanded from that point and there's just not really been a point where I've looked back. It's it's a ball which just got rolling and Wolf Headness has had so many fantastic opportunities. Um of doing so many different things, whether it's you know, museum work or travelling. One of the highlights was getting taken to Finland. Uh, that was great. Um, always wanted to go there. And we just meet all these fantastic people, be it other um, living historians, reenactors, tradesmen, and academics. Um, one of the involvement we have with academics is invaluable, um, not just for keeping abreast of everything that's going on, but just because they're interesting people. And, you know, we have an academic interest in the period too. Yeah, I think the Wolfernas is certainly the first uh, reenactment uh, or living history group that I know of, at least, that got serious scholarly attention. I noticed yeah. that when, I think yeah, I was in at a conference once, and I think, uh, and I remember Neil Price, of course, who, yeah, yeah, uh, who was course, yeah. one of the early people to get involved with Wolfernas and communicate with you guys, I think, you know, mm. working with Paul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he would show pictures of Wolfernas on... Uh, on the screen as he as he did his talks and uh, it always like I remember archaeologists were very impressed by what they yeah. saw. Well, that's good. Yeah, and I think I, that re- I, that, I, that really I, opened people's eyes to the possibilities of living history as an academic uh, medium. Yeah, because I think I think you're making a good point there. But it's it had always been looked down on a little bit, and I think in some re- some respects it, it it still is with with certain academics that they see it as a bit of a joke. And rightly so, um, I can understand how they reach those conclusions. You know, as we talked about previously, where you've yeah. got reenactors just churning out shit. Um, so you know, this is this is a point what I want to make clear as well. When when you make these recreations, you know, you've got these academics who are spending their lives on the research, and you're doing them a massive injustice when you you literally you know you're pissing in their faces. 
when you, you're just creating all these shit representations of something they've worked very hard to illuminate. Yeah. So we've kind of got to do do the honour of representing them properly. And I'd hate the idea of someone putting all the time into research and in publications only for us to kind of misrepresent that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, we've, we've had quite a good relationship with academia and with archaeology and archaeologists, you know, at all different levels. Meeting them and speaking to them is great. Uh, like I said, I've, I've got my, my degrees in history and archaeology. I've got a passion for archaeology, you know, at, at all the different levels. So getting to meet these people is fantastic for me. When you get to flick around through archives and see these other bits and pieces, you know, privileges of doing the shows sometimes is that you get to go through archives and that's like it's being like a kid in a sweet shop yeah i can definitely relate to that i think uh, the experience of first starting to go uh, go to university and being able to pick the brains of these authorities and Absolutely. meeting big names in the academic world but also with with living history and reenactment that's also given me some of the most amazing experiences uh, that i've had in my life and especially being without electricity uh, being in close proximity to, uh, to, to large fires, uh, mm. the camp life. Uh, it has a certain mood, I think, that is really rare. And you can kind of see, I give a lot of bad press uh, to more casual reenactors, but, you know, who can really blame them for, yeah. uh, for being attracted to this sort of scene? Because there are many beautiful things there that you don't really get many other places, there's... apart from maybe, you know, hiking or something yeah. today. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a primal disconnect which goes with escaping modernity and you know the average parts of your daily life of you know you do a lot of people do shit jobs they don't want to do uh, they sit in an office and they take loads of crap from people all day who have who just don't understand them and don't understand their appreciations and you can you can feel a bit lost sometimes and i think in some you know in some respects reenactment does attract the wayward soul from a normal life um, which isn't a bad thing it's no judgement whatsoever um, but it gives the opportunity to really get away from all that um, just to get a break from the everyday you know walking down the high street and being sold loads of bollocks things you're not interested in you know things which are just totally superficial and it gives you the opportunity to really get back to things which are important you know um, without going too esoteric, um, it's good to make that connect with nature. Yeah. You know, just to be outside in the element and to kind of get almost back to some some degree of basic, and it puts things into perspective as well. Uh, it it makes you it makes you appreciate a lot of things. Um, it makes you appreciate what's important. One of the great things, one of the shows which I really love. Um, which we've got coming up uh, ne- next month is Sutton Hill. And for anyone who hasn't been to Sutton Hill, uh, the actual location's beautiful. It's it's really nice. Uh, I mean, it's uh, English Heritage have got, I think it's English Heritage anyway, um, they've got the site, but the site's beautiful. And you can just go out and just enjoy the peace of being around like the burial mounds of Sutton Hill and mm. the nature which is there and, you know, listening to the to the birds in the morning yeah. appreciating it 
and sleeping in, in, in tents too. I think I find that's an like with all the fresh air. As long as it's not raining. I'll, um, <laughs> I'm going to be honest and make an admission here that I, I very rarely sleep in the tents anymore because I'm a, a creature of comfort and after serving many years of reenactment as a child, the thrill of tents isn't really there for me anymore. I'll never forget Sutton Hill sleeping in a tent once and uh, my father, after quite a few beers or possibly wine, I think was the case this time, coming back and, you know, with all the best intentions, trying to find where I was, and it was pissing it down, it was windy. I'd stuck my head out the bottom of a tent and he didn't realise I was there and just knelt down on my head instead. <laughs> and I remember thinking, <laughs> I don't like camping <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and now, basically, for me, it's any any opportunity to sleep somewhere which isn't near my dad because he will pass out anywhere is a blessing. Um, so... Um, if I want to go camping, I'll bloody go camping outside a reenactment. I should say I had the great privilege of working at an open-air museum. Mm. I had the opportunity to actually stay in a reconstructed Viking longhouse as I saw fit. And yeah. just the ability to sit there in a place that is just silent or kind of creaking, listening to the birds and the crackling fire, sleeping and waking up at five in the morning to the, to the sheep, you know, making their nightly cycle <laughs> past yeah. the house. Uh, is is extremely comforting. Although I will um, point out, it is when you do get those rare locations where you do have um, like a, a permanent structure, you know, mal. Yeah, there's not that many of them. There's not many around, but places I'm like spoiled because I grew up exactly where I did. So. <laughs> you've 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 been uh, you've been blessed with that. But. Um, yeah, stuff like that, that's brilliant. That's different for me. And it does feel different when reenactment where you sleep in a tent. When you like like at Westo, for example. Mm. Um Westo's another uh I've never been there, but it looks really great. It's good. One of the cool things about Westo is they built the houses exactly where the originals had been. They used the same post holes. Oh my. Uh, so Is you, that even legal? Yeah, well, the original had been burnt down. Oh, okay. Not not burnt down in in present, but in antiquity it'd yeah, been. Yeah, because there are lots of old like remains yeah. of that that they get just paved over anyway. So, well, it yeah. it was a bit of a thing, wasn't it? Really, anyway, that um, when a settlement had reached a certain point, or for whatever reason, um, the settlement had come to a conclusion that they'd burn them. They would, you know, yeah. the lifespan, and because houses had lifespans, um, they were an entity in themselves. Mm. It reached the end of, of the end of its lifespan, so they sent off in a similar manner and burning them isn't yeah, unusual. Like ritual. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think they basically excavated the holes of them, and there wasn't really a lot to preserve or a lot to do or say about what was there. So making that choice, I think, I think it was a good choice to make because you're getting something which is pretty accurate. I mean, I wish we wouldn't just leave them. Uh, my only criticism is that they've got them as bare wood, instead of uh, instead of sealing up the sides like like at places like at Mal. Um But when you when you get to, my point being when you get to stay at those places and you wake up in the morning, and you kind of uh, stagger outside, and just yeah. breathe in the air and appreciate what's around you and just close your eyes. And just listen to it and disconnect. And you can almost feel what it would have been like 
to wake up and almost live that life. You can, you know, yeah. you can kid yourself into it, and that's nice. I'm gonna miss that. And one thing that I'm missing already, you know, living here in New York, this is actually the first. I didn't realize, but this is the first episode uh, of the podcast that is fully recorded in the New York. Oh really? Yeah. So, so yeah. So this. Where uh, was the last one? Uh, the last one was recorded in Norway. With oh, was it? Yeah, but uh, the uh, the intro and outro was recorded here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So I that's, didn't realize that. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I've already had like a few weeks ago for. Um, oh, what is that? The holidays are not the same here as at home, but uh, uh, yeah, Memorial Day. Oh yeah, yeah. Memorial Day yeah. week weekend. I went up uh, to upstate New York, saw some colonial houses, uh, and I went into to the woods, listened to uh, to the frogs croaking at night, and it gave me a little bit of that feeling that I know from home, where I would sit on a burial mound and drink beer at dusk, yeah, which was one of you know my favorite activities when I had the chance to do so, but here in New York, you know, it's such a different landscape. Living in the urban canyon, yeah. So to speak. It's a I mean, very a lot, different. Uh, there's a lot to be said for it. I mean, this is my first time in New York as well, and it's like massively overwhelming in some in some regards. It's amazing. I mean, I think this place is fantastic, uh, and there's loads to see and do, and it kind of blows my mind a little bit. And I do find these places interesting. There is a novelty to it, but it's not the same. For me, as the kind of connect you feel when you, I don't know, you feel like you're touching history directly. Uh, I mean, in after hours, sometimes we get to go up and, and sit on the burial mounds at Sutton Hill. Um, and just the peace, like the absolute peace of the place and um, the kind of connect you're getting, not just with nature, but the connect you get with history. And it's a, a, a truly ancient history and knowing it's kind of, it's a history of your, you know, of your country as well, and mm. of that you're a person who inhabits this place, and the the place where where you are, and the person who was buried there, also shared that and inhabited this this place, um, and that kind of connection with history is, it's it's powerful, um, and you I don't know you, you don't get that in a city. But when again, that's the modernity and the disconnect we have. Yeah, I think it's also like significant when you go to Sutton Hoop. It's such a loaded and charged area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Axel and I, after work, we used to go uh, to the to the place uh, on that island where that open air museum is. Uh, when we go towards the inland, there is a narrow strait there, which is uh, oh, nice. the narrowest part of the Carmson Strait. Yeah. which some scholars, you know, you can argue with it or something, but some scholars argue that this strait is actually where Norway got its name from. Mm. And um, it, well, it must have been an extremely important tactical uh, place, this just narrow stretch of sea yeah. uh, to regulate, and you could just control anybody coming through. And just sitting there and meditating about all the important figures that must have passed up and down here yeah, throughout yeah. the ages is just mind-blowing yeah it's, it's a powerful feeling um, and you really do get to appreciate those kind of things uh, especially when you when you're so immersed in the environment where where it have been I mean obviously the environment changes but when you just sit and concentrate and kind of let other distractions fade away it's fantastic 
Ah, what a blessed way to end the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's been good. Yeah. It's been it. good. It's been nice to sit and just uh, enjoy it. Yeah. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming all the way to America. I know yeah. you didn't come here for the <laughs> podcast, but but it was, uh, it was a great coincidence that you were here. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. You have been listening to the Brute Norse Podcast. As always, my name is Erik Storsund. Be sure to check out BruteNorse.com for new and old articles on ancient and medieval Scandinavian curiosities. A particularly heartfelt thanks goes out to the Patreon supporters and those of you who've been buying shirts. Without you guys, I might as well be fishing and there would be no Brute Norse. Have a good night and see you again soon.